Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And today I'm flying solo with our guest today, Pastor Casey Hahn, who's at St. Matthew's in Renton, Washington. Casey, welcome. And I'd love you to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your ministry. Yeah. Hello, all. I am Casey. And for the last five plus years, I have had the pleasure of living in the Pacific Northwest about oh, maybe 20 minutes south of Seattle and uh, in a congregation that is extroverted and deeply connected in the neighborhood and growing in ways that are, are deep and wide and truth telling. It, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely place to be called and I'm, I'm deeply grateful and I'm glad to be here. I find Renton a really interesting part of Seattle. Can you describe for us just kind of the neighborhood around and how would you describe St. Matthew's in the midst of this context? Renton, it's a Boeing town. And from where I go walking every morning, I walk by where they are building all of the planes. Uh, it, so it is a town that in the 40s and 50s was really kind of lots of folks were coming and then moving into the area, but they were working folks. The neighborhoods have changed over the years. We're now 50 plus people of color within, um, and we have 89 different languages that are spoken in just the school that is two blocks away from St. Matthew's. So it is extremely diverse. I think the 15th most diverse city for its size in the nation. And so there's been a lot of changes that have happened in St. Matthew's that are reflective also in Renton. And our neighborhood is very eclectic. And even kind of the community that I serve, there is an eclectiveness to us. We don't ascribe to kind of a Lutheran, this is what it means to be a Lutheran. So just our last new member class, we had three Quakers and an Episcopal and someone right now who kind of sees herself as hybrid of Hindu and Christian. So ministering in this space calls me to be very porous in the ways in which the spirit is working. There is a sense of openness as I am, am even our neighbors that are of the church live right next door there from Ethiopia. They worship with us. They immigrated here. They continue to teach me what it means to be church. And so I'm constantly updating what does it mean to be a Lutheran pastor in this context. And it is not what I learned in seminary. So I'm thinking back the first season we were at Pivot, we were thinking about what it meant to pivot in the middle of a pandemic. Now we're a year in and we're trying to cultivate those lessons that we learned from the midst of that from people in different locations. And Seattle was on the front line of closing with regard to the pandemic a year ago. And before we really knew what was happening, talk about what that first season of pivoting looked like, specifically around things like worship and just kind of the stuff of church. Yeah. I was leading a youth retreat And it was, of course, one of those, I love youth. And so I left at like 11 o'clock at night and I finally got cell service and I got into the house at 1 a.m. and discovered that there had been this outbreak of coronavirus and there was a recommendation from the bishop that we shouldn't pass the plates (laughs) 
<laughs> like, so that was, I was like, oh no, we've got to change worship. And I remember waking up, I like maybe slept two hours because I was like, okay, I got to wake up, got to make sure I have a sermon, but also I've got to instruct the communion folks. And, and I was so nervous that people would struggle with this change of communion and offering and just waving for the peace. And now I just look back laughing. <laughs> and then the next week we didn't even have worship. So we switched and then we immediately went to online worship. The first month I remember writing letters, like I'd write a letter to the congregation and then realize I couldn't mail that letter because everything had changed. So I would sometimes write two different letters in the same day, having to shift and change. We had a COVID scare within that first week. So by March 9th, our entire building was shut down. My daughter's school was shut down on the 4th or 5th of March. So we were fully shut down from the beginning. We had staff meetings like three or four times a week because we were trying to just figure out what this was. It was dizzying to try to figure that out. We were doing daily phone calls that pastors could call in to be able to kind of like make sense of this or at least every other day. I mean, it was all hands on deck as we were all trying to navigate how to proceed. And I appreciated that I didn't feel alone in all of that. There, there were colleagues and people sharing information or I just wrote this letter, take it please. And so that kind of sharing was really, really helpful. We as a congregation and our council almost immediately, we tried three times doing like streaming worship, but it felt it didn't lift up our value of hospitality and welcome and listening. And so we, for Palm Sunday was the first worship service that we did as a Zoom worship. And oh, it was clunky and it was hard. But what we loved was the ability to share the peace, to see each other, have many voices leading rather than just one or two. And and so we've stuck with Zoom in all of its imperfection. I have appreciated the fact that we could be very responsive throughout our entire time in the pandemic, that if life is happening for someone, they can put it in the chat and we can immediately pray for them. That our 30 minutes after worship has become a time of deep spiritual care and it's modeled for the entire community uh, rather than just the pastors, the one who's standing in the narthex and praying for someone or they're telling me their heartache. I've seen an openness for the community to share whatever collective heartache or pain or grief that they have with that group that remains in worship. So that's that's been a beautiful byproduct of that. We also, within the first month, decided to open our building to the Center of Hope, which is a shelter for women and children and families experiencing homelessness. And so we turned over all of our classrooms, all of our fellowship hall, and we fully turned it over for three months. And then we networked with Luther's table to provide food for them because at that point we didn't know how the virus was spreading. And so we actually had pods for each family. So they had their own table. They The food was prepared at a different location and brought in. So we tried to be as creative as possible to keep these families safe. So that was like the first little bit was tending to our community, figuring out how to live out our values in a worship platform. But the second thing was to figure out how to continue to meet the needs of, of our neighborhood. The touch points that you were having both with your synod and with your own staff. I wonder if you can talk us through, what were you talking about? How did you make decisions around living out those values beyond, I want to say, the worship and the obvious, right? So now we've got people in our building and now we're doing worship, but how do we live it out when we can't do our programs, we can't do Sunday school, or or we can't do the retreats, whatever the packaging was of ministry? 
we decided to just let some things go because people did not have the capacity to do life as normal. And it felt inauthentic to be like, oh, come to confirmation class. It just felt like we are not taking into account where people were at. And we also found a beautiful bubbling up of the community. So two members reached out within the first three weeks and said, could we host a vigil? And so we created a space for them to host an online vigil and the staff wasn't leading it. They let that and we just came alongside of them. Another couple decided they wanted to have Friday dinners with the community. And so they hosted Zoom dinners. So it wasn't highly programmatic as much as we were trying to kind of let people know however they feel called to lead and walk with each other during this time. I think we call that in the church discernment. Mm, But often we have parked discernment only for long-term planning or big goals. And I love some of the things you said. We looked at our capacity and the capacity of the people, right, in our community. And what was authentic? What was living out? And you already said they're your values already. And when you did that and let things go, how cool that new leaders emerged or said, how could we step in and try something? Yeah. And over the course of this year, we've had three new teams emerge and have been created. So we have a spiritual care companion team that meets regularly. They've never met in person, which is remarkable. We have a a St. Matthew's anti-racism team that started in the summer, but all of them had been doing work for like four years before that in a lot of different capacities. So it's not as if somehow it's a bunch of people after George Floyd and and then kind of woke up to be like, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. The seeds had already been planted, but that that was a galvanizing moment, an important moment to finally say we need we need to be much more intentional than ad hoc when it comes to issues of anti-racism. Yeah. So we've had these teams emerge, uh, a transitions team that is living things out too. So One of the things I appreciate about your leadership style is the collaboration and the sense of you feel successful. You are doing your best as a leader when other people are thriving or they're they're finding a voice or they're stepping in in a new way. And to use a moment like that and say, hey, this is something I can keep doing. It's not a new thing, but keep doing. And I think a lot of people felt permission to experiment in this time because nobody knew, like if it didn't work, that's okay. But if we learned, it was okay, right? As long as we're learning and in that mode. And speaking of learning, so you had three months of this shelter in your building. I'd love to learn about what that was like when you rethought of how to repurpose your building when you weren't gathering. But also I want to you have been very intentional in your time there of engaging with the neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear you also talk about how did you reimagine or how did you think about how to be a neighbor in the midst of all this as well? I felt that for us to be church in the midst of the pandemic, and we have been given this amazing gift of a building (laughs) to steward and for me, it is, it is an atrocity that we would have people experiencing homelessness and not have a safe place for them to go. So how can we call ourselves church if we don't immediately say, come in and we're going to make beds for you and we're going to make sure that you're fed? So 
I think that's what went through me. And I, I was thinking, we can always paint a wall and we can always redo a floor. Those are not a life. And so it's a preservation of a life and to help people thrive. So that's kind of what went on in my mind. But I know that there were a few people who were pretty anxious about the decision. And uh, and then <laughs> Center of Hope left at the end of June. And in June, I, there was an email that was sent out to maybe like 30 different community leaders in Renton because there is a wonderful organization called Sustainable Renton that had been putting on a free grocery store of gleaned food. And they were just starting to talk about getting the USDA boxes. And they were looking for a partner because they were at a brewery and doing it out of there. However, places were opening up starting in the summer. And so they just couldn't maintain the parking lot space they were using. So they came over. We talked through how they could use our parking lot as a free grocery store. It started out. So July, the first Sunday in July, we went for it and we set up you know, tables in our parking lot and cars would drive through and then you would load the food into the trunk so that everyone was masked and we had gloves and we kind of figured out how to do, to work that. It grew from giving up wait, like 5,000 pounds to food to 25,000 pounds of food. And as the CARES Act money was coming, we were partnering together to get a cold storage unit as well as a dry storage unit. And now we have about 50 to 60 volunteers that come every single week. And we have a wonderful leader, Terry, who's been kind of working with the volunteers. And I try to work it every week and kind of work the line. And the volunteers are some St. Matthews, some within the community, some from Sustainable Renton. It is low barrier. Anybody can come and they can volunteer. We just want them to sign and take their temperature. As well as there is a spirit that if you need food, Great. And so people can come and they can volunteer for 20 minutes, an hour or whatever. But from 5 to 5.15, anyone can go through and get the food that they need and set it aside as they're working. So I have appreciated the dignity that this has provided, as well as we take inventory, you know, who who speaks what languages. And so there's Spanish and there's Vietnamese and someone has Korean. And so we kind of make sure that we have tried to make sure that that people can can have someone they can talk to in their own language. And even when we have a one couple who speak American sign, we have a designated person who walks with them with a clipboard, even though we don't have anyone, but we make sure that we have a host who's go, helping them go through the lines. We're not closed. Even though our worst sanctuary is closed, we are very much alive. And it's been meeting a wonderful need within the life of the, the community. And now we have a few other partnerships. We have a nonprofit called Kindring that works with babies and toddlers with special needs. And so they're going to be coming and letting families know that they can have screening here. And then the Arts Commission for Renton reached out and they said, you know, could we just have some of our bands who haven't been able to play could they come? So the last three weeks, we've had live music <laughs> for our free grocery store. I was like, soon we're going to give out hot dogs and it's going to be a party and we'll have a dance place because <laughs> it's really lively. You get a sense of this is what community should look like. And I feel as if we have been setting the table, like Christ has been setting the table every single week and our parking lot has become the sanctuary. And that has been beautiful. And I'm starting to get singles because the president and the coordinator for this organization, both of them uh, are dear to me and both have said, you know, they are not church people at all, but we'll say, you know, I'm around all you people, all you St. Matthew's people. And you're like, you're like my people. <laughs> and so 
one of them had a death in the family. And so we reached out and like, so there's been ways to offer pastoral care. There's been ways to offer companionship uh, that is mutual, that is not forced. It is of the spirit. But I think we're doing what we're called to do for this time and place. Wow. I feel like you close the building and it just abundance flowed. Yeah. In so many ways. So partnerships mm-hmm. and partnerships, just like you said about the leadership teams, they didn't just come out of nowhere. They've been working quietly or a few people, you know, collaboratively, informally, whatever, finding passions, kind of getting organized. Collaborations don't come overnight usually either. They come over a long time of having conversation or being at a table or asking questions about the city or maybe being at a football game, right? Like all of those things add together. But the sense of, first of all, here's a mission to your community that's bigger than you mm-hmm. and said, here's the mission. Would you help us, right? It's like joining God's mission. God's mm-hmm. already at work. We congregations and leaders just join. It's like, here's something bigger than us. Do you want to join? And I, I hear that echoing in a variety of ways, but that first big move was, sure, we got a parking lot. Yep. I also think of the abundance when you were saying the musicians. I know so many people that are musicians or in the art community that have been longing to just be with people, like yeah. do my craft. Like it's not about the pay. It's not about, I mean, yeah, they would like to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. But it is about being in community and the ability to be with a live community and the vibrancy. And I just have to think that just upped everything, right? When you've got people doing their gig and that that view of abundance. Yeah. Oh. Feels like it's rich here. Say something about that. If you're working the end of the free grocery store and that's where the diapers, if there's flowers or any kind of information people can get. Uh, and then then they say, can we close your trunk? And that's this, this beautiful, like, like you close the, the person's trunk and it's full. Like it's, it is not like a little box of food that sometimes you get from a food pantry. It is full. And because people have been working all over, there's bags in here and there it's yeah. Abundance. I, it's like a parable feeding the 5,000, whatever one you want to grab from Jesus, but it's lived out in this beautiful way. And we've had this group of maybe five or six teenagers that have been coming to from the local high school. And they don't really know any of our high school students here, but they wanted to come for community hours. And now they're here every single week and they're feeling so comfortable being here. And I love the way in which they're like, no, we got produce. But I love the image of setting the table. That's so biblical. It's so Christian and it's so ordinary. It is. But the joy is is really, really contagious. There's a 12-year-old that's been coming because her parents really need the food and they're working, but she walks over and helps out. And she's helped out in every area. She sometimes is helping translate for Spanish. And so she knows the different families that need it. But she has kind of befriended almost all of these caring adults in this free grocery store. And so yesterday or on Monday, she said to me, did you know I'm now co-president? I said, oh, Look at you. And so she just is like, this is becoming a home for her and people delight in her and she is finding that she can do good work. And it's a gift. It's a gift. Well, and all of us, the rug has been taken out from under us around purpose or recalibrating 
to find ways to live out, even if we know what our gifts are or what brings us joy or brings us meaning. But some people don't know how to do that. And it feels like you have this wonderful combination of people that can kind of be in this mentoring, creating space, not have to be about them alongside people are like, wow, serving others really does something, doesn't it? Like just awakening, right? To that kind of transformation. And it's so visible because it's all transparent. It's all in, it's all outside in this messy parking lot, right? Yep. And no one is asking, are you a member of St. Matthew's or not? Yeah. Yeah, There's a a deep sense of community and companionship. Mm -hmm. And I liked, I really appreciate that you lifted up purpose. I think Washington State Health has been producing some really helpful materials for teachers, for health providers around how to help people finish out the pandemic. So the public health said that people need hope, flexibility, connection, and purpose. And that has often been guiding how we're programmatically even making decisions for St. Matthews. I love that. And I like that kind of guidance because it forces you to translate it into your context, but you can translate it to school. You can translate it to so many in your family, you can transport to a one-on-one relationship if someone's struggling. But it also, those are human needs that we always need, right? This is just opened up and exposed in ways that you can't hide anymore. Yeah. But I think of sometimes the traditional ways in which we are church, that sometimes we have an artificial sense of connection. Right. Or our sense of flexibility is extremely lax. You can come to worship at this time and you can participate in these three programs. And that's what we got. Like we don't live into a a spaciousness around spirituality of being church together that I think people are really longing for. And so I think there's also a critique for the church to really be a little bit more imaginative and I don't know, innovative is the right word, but but we need to be much more expansive to let the spirit lead instead of us figure it out and program it and package it and then send it out to everybody. One more place I want to go, and you tipped your hat to it earlier about the anti-racism stuff. I know this is not new work that you've been at with St. Matthew and even for you personally about really being an anti-racism kind of advocate and within the church and beyond. But talk about your church has leaned into that a little bit more in this last year. How did the events that were happening around in the society help pivot the work you were already doing? And so maybe say, what were you doing? And then how has it changed or accelerated? One of our members, currently the president of our congregation, I didn't get permission to share her name, but she created a curriculum, an anti-racism curriculum called How to Talk to Your Racist Uncle and piloted it at St. Matthew's four years ago. And there were maybe 20 of us who went through that. And then since then has taken this kind of racism 101 to maybe four or 5,000 people, primarily here in the Pacific Northwest, some schools, um, universities. She's currently working with a police department down in the Tacoma area. And what I have appreciated is we just started the dialogue. And one of the things we noticed that many of our white parishioners just didn't know things. 
Like we were blissfully ignorant. So much of it is just like learning our history, learning the terms and also having a space to dialogue and talk about them uh, rather than you read a book and then like, oh, somehow I figured it out. I think we've, uh, we have to have much more space to grow and learn and one of the things that I've continued to to be drill in my mind that for us to do any kind of cultural competency, we need education, exposure, experience, and empathy. And that doesn't happen if you are sequestered in your home reading books. It happens when you're in relationship and you're learning together with others. So we had four years of that happening. One or two times a year, we'd have book studies and it would be brought up in sermons and things, aware that our entire church has not adopted and stepped into this. But there are some who have, and for some, they can't continue to follow Christ in a faithful way unless they continue to do this work of anti-racism because they see racism as a sin. And so it is faithful for us to continue this work. So after George Floyd, and that was, of course, galvanizing and um, rocked our world Myself, I was invited into some other colleagues of color to attend some events at their churches and to speak to what does it mean to be a white leader in the midst of these things. And those were very formative experiences for me as I have some very meaningful relationships with some colleagues here that are outside of the Lutheran church that I cherish and I have learned so much from. So that was all going on in our church was kind of reeling and learning. Uh, But we also had a Zoom bomber who came into our Zoom worship in July, and it was targeted. We have people of color as members of our congregation, and they five or six of them came in the midst of our worship. They used names like Betty with pictures of a grandma, and we had all sorts of people who were joining our worship that were friends of friends, and so it was hard to know who those people were. So it was very traumatizing, not only for the whole community, but also for our members of color. So we did a debrief. 40 members joined for kind of let's talk about this and let's not minimize this. And so we made space to let our members of color fully share the trauma of this experience, but also all the other things that come with it. Like this is not just one isolated experience. And that was really helpful as well. And so from that, this anti-racism team was kind of formed. And this team has been doing a variety of different things. One whole section has been doing advocacy with our school district, like publicly working with our school district. Another group is really trying to provide some educational opportunities for our congregation. And they've been hosting some conversations and some courageous conversations, some book studies. And then another wing have joined an anti-racism coalition that's in Renton. And I myself have joined uh, the King County Alliance for Justice. And, And so that is a wing of this little group. So we kind of, we all don't have to do all things at the same time, but we can be partnered in work in a variety of different ways. I love where you began that a person within really felt this was out of their faith Mm -hmm. where they were called into and you gave them space, let them experiment, let it kind of build over time. And I feel like one of the pivots that I'm having to make in the pandemic is what time is it in the life of a idea of a congregation in my own faith journey? And so while the urgency for this leader was four years ago, and that was a huge moment, it prepared you 
for other moments where it accelerated. So it wasn't that one moment is more important than the other. They're just different moments, right? Yeah. And then to hold space, again, almost a table, a virtual table, to hear stories and to hear stories of pain. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we're not good with that. And and to not excuse them or right? to try to or fix them. Mm-hmm, or put a pretty bow, but just yeah. let them be. And appreciate that within the life of our community, we have difference. And that's important to notice and and to value and to realize we just we can't collapse everything into sameness um, mm-hmm. or that we're all going to be the body of Christ is made of many different members. And let's let the body of Christ continue to be different members. Well, well, I'll be excited to check back and see where things go a year from now. Each of those three, internally, what's going to change as you continue to ebb and flow and discern on your values and where God is calling you in your relationship with the neighborhood and of the real needs at the real time and being an open community, kind of a hub, if you will, of gathering resources and and getting them to where they need to be. And then really going deep and saying, there are some hurts and reconciliation and healing that need to happen. And some of it may start with us even recognizing it's among us. Like the formation of my call to be an anti-racist leader, uh, becoming an anti-racist leader. I'm learning more outside of the church. I see it vital that I am entering into spaces where I am I am not the leader, spaces that the leaders of color are leading and I am following, that I'm really aware of my own whiteness and my proclivity to order and comfort and uh, time and, and to kind of let some of those things fall to the background. They're still a part of me and not all of those things are bad. I think we have, we don't need to live in guilt or shame, but but to live in a space where I am, I need to be deeply in a space of listening and transformation. The learning for me is happening in a variety of different places here at St. Matthew's 100%, but also what's happening in the larger church with lots of other churches in the area. And then locally, as there's some anti-racism work that's happening here in the city. And I'm so grateful for the leaders that I get to to learn from and who have an on-ramp for me to continue to ask questions because I don't, I don't know it all, but I desperately want to be one who is more of a help than a hindrance. Well, Casey, what a joy to hear stories of St. Matthew's and how God is working in and through the community, the geography, literally an address, yes. but also the people and I use that in maybe air quotes, uh, that have seen this as a place to participate in what God is already up to in and around the community where you are. I thank you for modeling or leaning into or stumbling upon whatever it feels like on every given day, a leader looking to the future and continually saying, God, what would you have us be doing at this time, that is so hard. And it's not what we're trained and it's not all the the things we're asked by bishops and systems to report. But I want to thank you on behalf of the church for doing that. And today for sharing your story, I think it will be encouraging to so many people, not only to know this can happen, these partnerships, but that it's going to be messy and we stumble upon it as we do this work. 
Any closing thoughts you have that you would like to leave to encourage our leaders as we end today? I think I would love to share with colleagues that which I need to continue to hear and that it's to not lose heart. I am on this call, but I'm tired. I've got a little headache that's starting (laughs) because I know of all that I need to get done as we're preparing for Holy Week. And I've had a sense of grief because this is the second time that we're doing a virtual Holy Week and there are people that are hurting. The last confirmation class I had, three girls came because it's a small group of ninth graders who courageously decided that they didn't feel they could be confirmed in the fall because life felt awful. So they said, we want more time. So I've been meeting with them until they're ready. We did check-ins and for the first hour, which we were only meeting for an hour and a half, they just poured out their hearts around really deep things like suicide and eating disorder and identity. And these are three 14-year-old girls. So we are all really walking with folks through really hard things. And so I pray for gentleness for each one of us and for us not to lose hearts. And that reminds me of a practice that I have had to resurrect in this time when it feels heavy and I'm going to bed and my head is spinning and the weight is heavy. And I just say, God, it's your church and your ministry. I leave it with you today. I'll pick it up in the morning. Thanks for joining us, Pivot listeners. And we're excited next week that Luis will be back and we will have another story from the front lines of ministry. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from Faith LEAD, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.